Well, again, it's good to have you here at Freedom, and it's a joy to welcome in those of you who are joining us online. Glad to have you be a part of uh, Freedom Online today. We are in part two of a three-part series entitled Pursuing Peace. Every one of us are looking for peace, aren't we? I mean, if, if the truth be told, if I could offer you today that at the end of the service, if you'll come forward and receive what we have to offer, if we could give you a pill or say a little prayer over you and guarantee you that the peace that you experience in your own heart and in your own mind day to day would be multiplied at least fivefold, how many of you would be at the altar at the end of the service today? Well, of course, everybody would. I'd, I'd be leading the way to get in on that. We all long for a greater sense of peace in life. Now, last week where we started uh, was by talking about seeking peace through reconciling relationships that are messed up, working through conflict in relationships. And as a, uh, a pretty clear demonstration of how much we're desperate for peace and in need of healing and relationships that would help to bring us closer to a place of peace, I'll share this with you, that um, one of the things that's been going on since we moved into the new facility, we had never been, uh, you know, we've been broadcasting through the website, but we had never broadcast uh, through Facebook, and because of internet problems, when we moved in here in December, out of kind of necessity at the last minute, we just put a service on Facebook, and uh, it was terrible because uh, it was last minute, and there were a lot of things that weren't right about it, and it actually had a Candy Crush border, and was it looked like a clown had made it. It was really bad, but... But a bunch of people watched it. I mean, like a bunch of people watched it. And so we said, well, we better keep doing this. And so now we actually get our main feed onto that. And uh, on a typical average week on Facebook, we'll have about 150 people who will view the service. Not all of those are live. Some of them are live on Sunday morning and some of them will come back to Sunday evening or Monday or Tuesday and watch the service. So actually on a typical uh, week, we'll have more people who will uh, watch the service, take part in the service elsewhere than are actually in the room, which is pretty neat to see, but about 150 on average through Facebook. We also broadcast through the website and through uh, YouTube. YouTube's actually growing quickly. Well, it's interesting to note that this past week, when we started talking about peace and seeking peace through reconciling conflict and relationships, uh, Jackie noticed real quick that the the number of views for that message was jumping a bunch from last Sunday. And she said, why don't we just go ahead and boost that so that more people around are aware of it? Well, by last evening when she looked, more than 900 people had viewed it through Facebook alone, not counting YouTube and the website. So um, that speaks volumes to me that people are hungry for what we're talking about. People are hungry for peace. When, when people actually connected with a message that offered an opportunity to find peace where there's turmoil, folks suddenly are saying, I want to share that. So I, I say that to intro the message, but also just as a reminder to you, uh, the church family, there's nothing that we can do that's easier, that's an outreach tool, than to share what you see on, on Facebook that the church is producing because it gives us an opportunity to make connections here locally and with people outside the area. So thank you for doing that. And if you're not doing it, hey, pass it along. And share it with others. But uh, today, we're going to move to what really is the heart of the matter. And I'll confess to you that I set up this series the way that I did uh, to, to sort of bait you with something that matters, but that's not the most important piece, to get you to the most important piece, which is today, um, which is talking about making peace with God. Because 
as hard as we would work to make peace with everybody around us, the truth of the matter that we, we know when we think about it is you can make peace with everybody in your world. And if you are not right with God, you don't have peace in your life, do you? If you, if you don't have peace with yourself and with your maker, it really doesn't matter who else you try and make peace with. And so today we press into the heart of the matter and talking about finding peace with God. David said in Psalm 34, 14 that we should seek peace and pursue it. It is worth working at finding peace in life. Now, I'm afraid some of us maybe lose hope and just think, well, this is just how it's always going to be. I'm just going to be eaten up with stress and worry and guilt and shame and fear and all of these things, and I'm just not going to have peace. Well, I've got good news for you today. David was pointing us toward a reality that we can experience, that we can live in on pretty much a a constant basis. I I know this uh, for a fact. I know it in, in reality in my own life. Jesus said, Well, first of all, before I get to what he said, let me just remind you of what the angels said when Jesus appeared, when he was born. Do you remember the angelic announcement of what Jesus' arrival would bring? What did they say? Peace. Peace on earth. Peace to those on whom God's favor rests. Jesus came to bring us peace. Now, I know the the theologians in the room are going, yeah, but Jesus also said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Yes, he did say that. But understand it in context, he was talking about the fact that his arrival would would bring pain for the kingdom of darkness. That he came to usher in peace for the people of God and to bring peace to people who have never known it, but to bring pain to the enemy. And that he was going to forcefully push back the kingdom of darkness. So yes, he, he was coming to wage war that would result in peace in our lives. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, when, when he was hours away from doing the thing that would ultimately deal the death blow to the hold that the kingdom of darkness had on this world and its inhabitants, Jesus said to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give you as the world gives. That passage is good news. And if somebody needs to say amen after that. When Jesus says, My peace... I give to you. How how big a deal is it that you get Jesus' peace? Well, think about Jesus' life. He constantly was dealing with either opposition or people trying to get something from him. That's essentially all he ever encountered on any day of his life. It was either people who hated him, they wanted to do away with him, they wanted to discredit him or kill him. That would cause a little stress, wouldn't it? Or he had his family saying he's a lunatic, somebody bring him back home, bring him out the hook, get him out from in front of the crowd, he's lost his mind. Or he's dealing with needy people. Oh my goodness. They'll suck you dry. They'll wear you out. And that's surrounding him all the time. And yet here's Jesus in the middle of that all the time. And he's just as cool as the center seat of a cucumber. He's always at a place of peace. And Jesus is saying at the end of three and a half years of the disciples watching him and just wishing that they could have more of what he has, knowing that he's about to walk with them into the most stressful, frightening, threatening environment of their entire experience. And he says, my peace I give to you. I want you to walk in what I have. It's not the kind of peace that the world offers. It's way better than that. And I'm going to give it to you. Well, I've got good news for you this morning. The Spirit of Jesus is here. Pentecost has come. The Spirit is here. And he says, the peace of Christ 
I give to you. Not peace as the world gives. It's the peace that Jesus gives. It is an abiding peace. And you can have it. We're going to talk about how to get it. But first I want us to consider for a moment. Jesus said, it's not peace like the world gives. I want us to consider for a couple of minutes the kind of peace that the world gives. Now, you've never taken a class, probably in school, on how to get peace. You've probably never watched a TV special on how to get peace. And yet, everything I'm fixing to say, you already know. Because you live in a world that has just worked throughout your life to brainwash you and me to think that what I'm about to share with you is the path to real peace in life. See if you don't identify with this. Pull out your outlines. Walk with me through the world's peace plan. The first part of the peace plan is this. Pursue enough money to, to secure peace about the future. Everybody knows that helps bring you peace, don't we? If you just got more money, you'll be more secure. And the more secure you are, the more peace you'll have. It's logical, isn't it? Surely more money will bring me more peace. That's the first major plank in, in the world's peace plan. More money will equal more peace, more security. Second part is tied to the first, and that is pursue entertainment, toys, and possessions to avoid boredom and restlessness. Now, you see, you need that second piece because what you start finding out as you succeed in acquiring more money is that something's wrong. You find out the reality of what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. For the one who loves money, he never has enough. Ecclesiastes is very clear that the more you acquire the more you stress about it. It doesn't bring you greater stress. It brings you greater worry. If you set your heart on riches, you find yourself not at more peace, but at more a place of greater stress. And so when we've chased after money to bring us greater security and greater peace, and then you realize, I don't have it, the way we begin to mask that is, well, I need more stuff, I need more toys, and I need more forms of entertainment. And so we chase after that. We make sure that we have a connection to something that keeps us distracted, engaged, or entertained all the time. I mean, do you see how constant it is? We have to have video screens or electronic devices in our hands, in front of our faces, all the time. I mean, whether we're, we may be in a restaurant surrounded with people who love us and great food in front of us. And what's everybody around the table doing? I mean, we just, we've constantly got to have something entertaining us and engaging us. Make sure you've got plenty of toys and entertainment to keep you occupied and, and to cover up the sense of emptiness that money didn't satisfy. And then the third part of the world's peace plan is pursue relationships that are easy and that do not require you to change. Now, nobody in your life probably ever told you that line, and yet, again, the world has modeled for you Hollywood has modeled for you, television has modeled for you, that you should pursue relationships that are easy, that don't cause conflict for you, that don't cause you to change. You should pursue the kind of relationships that you see in movies and television, where the other person's just always, oh, you're so wonderful, I think I'll take my clothes off and just do everything I can to make you happy. Isn't that what you see? Where, you know, relationships are just all about yes to everything. You see it on the screen, and then you look for it in real life, and you find real human beings don't act anything like what you see on the screen. And so then that leaves us frustrated, and we feel like, you're the reason that I don't have happiness and peace in life. 
So I'm going to trade you as a friend for somebody else. I'm going to trade you as a husband, as a wife, as a boyfriend or girlfriend for somebody else who will bring me real joy and peace. You see this happening all around you? Of course we all do. Now I'll tell you, the ultimate manifestation of this is seen in two places. Pornography and social media relationships. And I'm not trying to equate those two, by the way. But I'm just saying those are ultimate expressions of, of this value. That we value relationships that cost us nothing and, and don't cause conflict or any need for change. And those two things are the, the perfect picture of that. You see, with pornography, we're, we're given the illusion of a relationship with somebody that only brings us pleasure and that doesn't require us to do anything at all. We never have to adjust. We never have to serve. We, we don't ever have to change for them. We just get something out of that. And in terms of how the relationship works, social media is only one step behind that. We can be Facebook friends, and your main job is to like whatever I say. Right? If we're Facebook friends, affirm me, hit the like button frequently, and if you don't do it enough, and if you're actually crazy enough to oppose something that I say or post, you know how I fix that. That's right. I'll just unfriend you. I don't have to fool with you. These are perfect relationships in the world system. Relationships that don't cost me anything or make me change. Fourth, the world's plan for peace is pursue enough morality to soothe your conscience. You don't have to be overly good. You definitely don't need to be overly religious. But you do need to be good enough that you can feel good about yourself. So... Be a part of a charitable organization. Be a part of a club that gives money to help somebody out. Give a little something away. Maybe go to church. I mean, don't go overboard, but be a moral enough person that you can feel good about yourself. Helps you have peace. And then the fifth and final piece, the first four things were all about pursuing things. The fifth one is simply this. Avoid pain and sacrifice as much as possible because surely those things work against peace, don't they? Pain and sacrifice? Who wants that? Would you not agree that this is a pretty good description of the world's plan for peace? Get enough money to be secure. Have enough toys and entertainment to not get bored. Relationships that are not costly. Avoiding all conflict and and sacrifice. And being just moral enough to not have to feel bad about yourself. And the sad truth of the matter is, this plan doesn't work but if we're honest I don't think I'm off base in saying this when I name those five things if we're really honest isn't there a big part of you that wants this kind of peace I know we're in church so we're not supposed to say that it's like no preacher I want the sacrificial kind of peace no you don't you're like me we want this kind of peace it's like Some of us are thinking, at least let me try it on for a little while and see how it fits. Let me have a year where I've got plenty of money and relationships are easy and I've got all the toys that I need. No risk, no sacrifice, no pain. Everybody in this room would sign up for that peace plan if you could be guaranteed five years of that starting right now. Everybody would come up here with their check for $1,000 if you could get a five-year version of that, wouldn't you? Of course we would. The fact of the matter is, this plan doesn't work. M. Scott Peck in his work, The Road Less Traveled, put it this way. 
life is difficult. And once we can see this truth, then we can transcend it. You see, this plan doesn't work because, first of all, we weren't made for money, and money doesn't give us true security and peace. And relationships with real human beings who God brings into our lives to sanctify us and change us and make us into a holy people require a rub. Following Jesus in a world that's still so influenced by the kingdom of darkness puts us in a place of conflict and sacrifice. That means that life is going to be difficult. It doesn't mean that it's supposed to be hellish every day. It's not. Thankfully, there's a good God who made a world where we can have happiness and we can have moments where it's not just turmoil around us. But the truth of the matter is, life is hard. Life is painful. And, and as he said in his book, the sooner you can accept that, the sooner you can begin to transcend it. You get what he's saying there. As long as you think, well, life shouldn't be hard. We shouldn't have hard relationships. And we shouldn't have seasons where we don't feel like we've got enough. We shouldn't have all of this difficulty. We deserve better than this. The longer you think like that, the longer you will be a miserable, bitter person. You'll be mad at God. You'll be mad at whoever you're married to or whoever you're close to because they didn't make you happy. And God didn't take good care of you. And you won't have peace. The sooner that you can accept... The human beings living on this side of eternity in a broken world that's still so influenced by sin and darkness are going to experience pain and difficulty in life. And that in the midst of that, Jesus offers us his peace. You don't have to take away suffering. You don't have to take away the challenge of relationships. You don't have to take, you know, have the made-up perfect husband or wife. You don't have to have all that stuff to have peace. In the middle of the difficulties of your life, Jesus says you can have peace. If Jesus could have it, you and I certainly can. How do you get it? The world's plan doesn't work. What's God's plan? What's God's formula for peace? It's simple. It's simpler than what we just covered there really, if you boil it down, there are three parts to experience in the, God, the, the peace that God wants you to have in life. It's not going to take a great long while to explain this. We're just going to dive right in. Three parts to God's formula for peace. And the first one is this. Repentance begins the process for forgiveness, healing, and moving toward peace. Repentance. That is not a word that we often want to even hear. And it's not the first word that we tend to think of when we think about peace. And I'll tell you, you don't get it. You don't get peace without repentance. It's worrisome to me to read the words of Jesus recorded in the Gospels and then to compare them to what you hear preached from pulpits across America today. Because when Jesus stood up to teach... If you had to guess one word that you can be sure you're going to hear when Jesus stands up to teach, what is the most likely word to come out of his mouth? Absolutely. From the time he started his ministry, he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is the message that permeated his entire ministry. The Gospels make that clear. From, it says over and over, from that time on, he preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And I don't hardly ever go anywhere where I hear anybody preach a message of repentance. 
In fact, I think we lose sight of what it even means to really repent. To repent means to make a fundamental change in how you think. I used to to think this, and I've had to let that go. And now I have a, a view that is completely different from that. It's like 180 degrees opposite of what it used to be. It's a change in perspective. It's a change in mindset that radically changes how you live your life. Jesus said, you must repent. You must change how you think. What is it you need to change about how you think? Well, one of the things you've got to change is we've got to let go of the world's peace plan as being our peace plan. We've got to be willing to repent of having chased after money, having chased after entertainment and stuff and easy relationships and trying to take the, the easiest road to avoid pain. We need to repent of that because that is living by our own agenda and that's about as wicked as we can be. A lot of us think we don't need a message of repentance because we've bought into the idea of, well, I've been moral enough, I've been good enough, I haven't killed anybody. I don't steal from people. I'm not a rapist. I'm not a, a violent person. So surely I'm not that bad. We are fundamentally broken. And here's what the Lord said about that two different times through Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 6 and also in Jeremiah 8, he said this. Speaking of the religious leaders, when he says they... They have treated my people's brokenness superficially, claiming peace, peace, where there is no peace. I don't know about y'all, but just that one line sure does call to mind some specific faces and pulpits and messages in America. Oh, peace, prosperity, and blessing all around. And the Lord says, They are declaring peace where there is no peace. Because they're treating my people's brokenness superficially. Were they ashamed when they acted so abhorrently? They weren't at all ashamed. They can no longer feel humiliation. Therefore, they will fall among the fallen. And when I punish them, they will collapse, says the Lord. That's a pretty heavy word there, isn't it? God's making it clear... The people that I've called to lead my people and to teach my people, instead of calling them out of how they've been living and thinking and calling them to a different way of living and thinking, he says, no, they've just blessed that and said, oh, peace to you. Peace for how you're living. Blessing, blessing, blessing. It sounds like if you went home right now, if your assignment was just leave, go home as fast as you can, turn on your TV and listen to as many different ministries as you can, the message being preached this morning, I will tell you the most popular message is a generic message of just blessing and prosperity. And it's essentially living where you're living, however you're living. Just believe God for more and you're going to get more. It is the world's message for how you get peace. And it's a lie. It's treating our brokenness superficially. Boy, that'll mess you up. Treating brokenness superficially. I know that firsthand. I know that in the physical. I've had a few injuries in my life. I was a clumsy kid growing up, and I I tended to break things. Broke things out there, but also broke things in my body. Broke my arm playing football. Broke my ankle playing basketball. Broke my foot 
playing with my kids when I got a little bit older. I've broken a number of things. And thankfully, with each of those injuries, went to the doctor eventually, and they put casts on, did surgery where it was necessary, and they fixed those things. And all of those injuries are completely healed. I have to stop and think to even remember, you know, which arm was broken, which ankle was broken, which foot was broken, and, you know, where the surgery was. All of those things, because they were dealt with. The root of the matter was dealt with. Where surgery was needed, surgery was done. Where bones needed to be set and protected, that was done. But I had one injury in my life when I was in middle school. Um, it actually mimicked an injury that I would have later in life. I, when, when I was an adult, when I broke um, my left foot, just being silly with my kids, and we were playing chase, and I, I tripped and, and rolled my ankle, and, and it broke the um, accessory navicular bone, that bone on the inside of your foot that sticks out. It's what the ligaments go down from your leg, and they hang on. They're attached there, and it gives you the ability to hold your foot straight and point it forward. And when that bone breaks off, you don't have that ability, and your foot just slews out to the side. And so they have to go in and reattach the bone and, and put all that back together. It sounds a lot worse than it is. Um, well, that happened to me as an adult, and they put it back together. It wasn't a lot of fun, but it, it fixed it, and it's fine. And after a few months in a boot, you know, I've never known the difference since then. But I had essentially the very same injury on the other foot when I was in middle school from playing basketball. Well... We didn't have orthopedic specialists in the little town that I grew up in or anybody who would recognize what was going on. And so that injury was treated superficially. Just put an ace bandage around it for a couple of days. Walk on crutches. Rub a little dirt on it. It'll be okay. Just shake it off. Well, it didn't just suddenly get better, but we also didn't bother with going to the doctor. And it just lingered and lingered and lingered. And eventually was just allowed to sort of sort of heal in the sense that, you, you know, you wait long enough, the swelling goes away, but nothing allows it to heal. With the result that my right foot, I cannot point my right foot forward at the ankle. This is the, be the best I can do right here. I, I, when I walk, I walk like this all the time. One foot pointed where I'm going and one foot slewed off to the side like a duck. Because there's nothing attached to down here that lets those muscles pull that back in. All the time, I, I, I'm self-conscious of it because it looks goofy. And so I'm all the time trying to wrench my entire right leg inward because I don't have any control over that foot to bring it back in. So now you'll all watch how I walk around. Yeah, he does walk kind of wacky. So now I'm drawing attention to my weirdness. I tell you all that to say it is a picture of what happens when you treat brokenness superficially. You see, you'll get to a point that you don't notice the pain anymore, but it never gets corrected. It's never allowed to heal. And just like, I mean, I can remember as a teenager, my mom would laugh because when we'd, we'd always go to the beach. And when we'd go to the beach, she'd always say, I can always tell where you walked because one footprint this way and one footprint this way. And she's like, I always know where you've been. There's a part of me that's never pointed in the right direction because there was a brokenness that was never addressed and mended. And you see, that's a picture in the natural of what happens to so many of us. We're all broken people. We carry around different kinds of brokenness, different things that we have bought into or done or had done to us. We're all carrying brokenness. The thing that makes us different is not whether or not we're broken. It's whether or not our brokenness has truly been addressed. It's painful to address brokenness. 
You see, when, when they fixed the other one that had the same thing happen to it years later, oh, it hurt like crazy for the next several days after surgery. But now I don't have any problems with it because the real problem was addressed. It was corrected. We don't like messages of correction because they cause us pain in the short term. Jesus was willing to bring some pain in order to address root issues. And that's why the core message of Jesus was, you better change how you think. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. It's interesting that the second half of that statement is about the kingdom. He's saying you better change, you better change how you think. And when he says how you change the way that you think, it has everything to do with the kingdom. I wonder, have you noticed, I'm sure you have, unless you've been in a coma for the last couple of weeks, have you noticed how obsessed we all have been with the royal wedding? I mean, could you possibly have missed what happened yesterday? Everybody knows what happened yesterday morning. I mean, the coverage started at 3 or 3.30 in the morning on every major network in America. The royals are getting married. Y'all are looking at me like, what are you talking about? You know what I'm talking about. Harry marrying Meghan. Harry's not even a crown prince. He'll never be the monarch. And he marries an American movie star, and the world is just in awe. And I I have to step back and just wonder about these things at times, because, I mean, it's one thing for the Brits to be so taken with it, but way beyond the U.K., I mean, America is absolutely smitten with this whole thing, and it really does beg the question, why are we so enamored with this? I mean, when you think about in the U.K., the Queen... Bless her heart. I mean, she's been at it for 66 years. She's an incredible figure, but she doesn't rule anyone. It's a constitutional monarchy, and there's really very little monarchy. It, it's more about the prestige and what she represents. She doesn't govern anyone. Everybody wonders if Charles is going to have to be 100 before he ever gets to be king. The truth of the matter is, you know, when he is king, he's not suddenly going to have much more power than he's had as the Prince of Wales for the last 75 years. And, you know, it's... It, it really is a peculiar thing when you consider it. The monarchy doesn't possess great power, and yet people are just so in awe of this whole thing. And I'm absolutely convinced that it's not difficult to understand why. It's because imprinted into who we are by God is the desire to experience the ultimate reality of the kingdom of God. With life where we serve the one true king. And this is not about what forms of government should look like. I'm just telling you, there is a part of us, while we are so grateful that we live in a, in a republic where we're governed by rule of law and so much that's so healthy and right about how we live, and yet there's a part of us that's just so in awe of the monarchy. When you say, well, would you want to live under the rule of the king? Well, I don't think so. You have a bad king, that could really do you wrong. And yet, something in our hearts is drawn toward the whole idea of a king and a kingdom. It's because you were made for the king. You were made for kingdom life. This call to repent for the kingdom is at hand is a reminder that you are called to live under the sovereign rule of a king who gets to direct and dictate every part of your life because you were made by him and for him. 
And the fundamental change that we're called to make when we're called to repent is to stop living life on our own terms where we make up the rules and where we say, I was made for the king. I belong to the king. I live for the king. And so I don't get to chase after all these things that the world invites me to chase and says that they're going to make me happy. I'm made for the king. David said in Psalm 32, speaking of of how he had sort of lived out the reality that's voiced in Jeremiah of having superficially addressed his own brokenness. He said, Lord, I prayed to you again and again, but I didn't talk about my sins. How many times have you prayed like that? We say our prayers, we'll tell God all the things we need him to do, but we do not like to talk to God about our own issues, do we? That gets painful. Or I prayed to you again and again, but I didn't talk about my sins, so I only became weaker and more miserable. Every day, you made life harder for me. You might want to underline that last phrase. God, you made life harder for me. It's not just that life just happened to turn difficult. No, God, you specifically are making life harder for me. Do you know why that's true? Because God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. God resists those who are proud and think, I'll live life on my own terms. I'll make up my own rules. And he said, as long as I didn't deal with my issues, God, you made life harder for me. I became like a dry land in the hot summertime. But then I decided to confess my sins to the Lord. And I stopped hiding my guilt. And I told you about my sins. And you forgave them all. And thus begins the process of experiencing real peace in life. He said, my life was difficult and it got more difficult and more miserable the longer that I did not repent of my own wickedness and deal with my issues. But when I did, boy, the change that began to take place. You know, as I think about this, I'm reminded of why the 12 steps of recovery that we teach and and model and coach people into in Celebrate Recovery, why that plan works. It doesn't work because the big book in recovery says this is what you do. It's because the 12 steps reflect this book. Listen to the first couple of steps or or two of the earlier steps. Step one says this. We admit that we are powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors and that our lives have become unmanageable. That is a practical expression of repentance. We're a hard-headed person who has said, I've got this, I've got this, it's under control, I can manage this, I can change this whenever I need to, I can handle this. Repentance is the moment when we say, I don't got this. It's not under control. It is not manageable. I've got to change how I think. I thought that I was in control. I am not. I am tired of superficially trying to cover up my own brokenness. And I change my mind. I change my words. I I change how I react to this. And I say, I'm not under control. I'm not in control. My life is not manageable. That's repentance beginning right there. And as you begin to move through the steps, step two says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. Oh, now we're really on to something. And if you're really serious about repentance, you've got to move all the way to steps four and five. Step four says we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. This is what separates the the men from the boys, the women from the girls in recovery. John will tell you, Sally will tell you, people will bail right and left when it gets to to the fourth step. When you actually have to write down what is broken in your life. 
And then when you get to the fifth step where you're going to confess to yourself, you admit to yourself, to God, and to one other human being, your own failures and brokenness. So that in real repentance, you can let God begin to bring about change and healing. That's repentance. That's why this plan for recovery brings about change in people's lives. It's why we say it doesn't matter what your hurt, habit, or hang-up is. This plan for recovery will make a difference because this is a biblical plan. Now, I'm not here to, to beat a drum for CR per se, but what I'm saying is the reason we see so much life change in CR is because this thing that we're talking about where people move from chaos to healing and peace, it's God's plan. And it begins with a change of mind. I'm not in control. I can't manage this. And I'm going to have to turn to the God who is bigger than me and who can bring about change. The second part in God's formula for peace is just tied immediately to repentance, and that is faith. Personal faith in the crucified and risen Jesus is what makes us right with God. When we realize we're not in control and we can't just superficially fix what's broken by going to church or trying harder or being a little better, we repent of that. The key piece then is to turn in faith to Christ. Paul said in Romans 5, 1 and 2, We've been made right with God because of our faith. Everybody say faith. So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our faith, Christ has brought us into the blessing of God's grace that we now enjoy. Grace is the undeserved favor and and blessing of God in our lives. And we're very happy because of the hope that we have of sharing in God's glory. Faith, very simply put, is the one-word answer to the question of what do I have to do, what do I have to have to be made right with God? You don't get right with God by going to church. You don't get made right with God by getting dunked in holy water. You don't get right with God by trying harder or making some... Some declaration of you know, reciting a creed every week. You get right with God through faith. The word faith also is the same root that means trust or believe. Biblical faith is very simply this. It is personal trust in the personal God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. That's it. It is you personally choosing to trust that you can't be good enough to get to God. You can't work your way there. You can't improve yourself enough to, to be checked off by God as in the family. It's realizing that God doesn't grade on a curve. So, you know, however many times we might have rehearsed, well, I'm no worse than anybody else around me, realizing that doesn't mean anything to God. God isn't comparing you to anybody around Him. You, he's comparing you to Jesus, and Jesus is perfection. Faith. Is coming to that place of realizing I could never measure up, but Jesus has done for me what I couldn't do for myself. He's lived a life of perfection. He's given himself as a sacrifice, accepting all the pain and punishment that I deserve. And now he extends his righteousness as a gift to me. Faith is trusting that what Jesus did is enough to pay for our brokenness and to make us right with God. By faith, we're made right with God and we have peace with God. In CR, they sum up this piece with step three, which is we made a decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God. That's what faith looks like. God, I don't know what all you're going to do with me. 
I just know I've got to give you control. My life, my future, my decisions, I give it to you. That's what faith looks like. In Ephesians 2, Paul said, yes, at one time you were far away from God. Anybody in here been far away from God? Few of us have been far from God. The truth is we've all been far from God. But now in Christ Jesus. Everybody say in Christ Jesus. Now in Christ Jesus, you're brought near to him. You're brought near to God through the blood sacrifice of Christ. Christ is the reason that you are now at peace. You can only be at peace if you're in Christ Jesus. One of the more intriguing things that's happening on planet Earth right now, and this is just, I say this because I'm a science nerd and I admit it, is that there's so much thought and energy being devoted to figuring out how we're going to get people to Mars in the next 20 years. It feels a lot like what it must have felt like uh, at the beginning of the 60s when President Kennedy said, you know, we're fixing to put men on the moon. And people looked at him like he was just a nut job. Like, as if men could actually fly to the moon. Well, now our government and, and NASA and other governments have declared we're fixing to send people to Mars. And it's going to happen if the Lord tarries in the next 20 years. People will fly to Mars. And some people in the room are like, who cares? And why would we want to spend the money doing that? Well, that, that's a whole other conversation for another day. But it, it is an intriguing thing. We're going to send people to another planet millions and millions of miles away. It's intriguing to watch all the things that are going on around this as they're studying and trying to figure out and prepare for how to send people to Mars. And it's interesting to note what no one is doing. No one is doing leg exercises and working on their high jumps in order to take off and go to Mars. There's, there's nobody out there doing that. There is nobody on earth that is doing exercises and arm workouts so that they can flap their way high into the sky and zoom off to Mars. Nobody's practicing that. Nobody is constructing wings to hold on their arms so that they can fly high into the sky. And if they can just flap hard enough, get to Mars. Nobody's doing that. And we all know why. Because it would be an absurd, useless effort. No matter how high you could jump, you're never going to get outside the reach of Earth's gravity. And no matter how high you can fly, if you ever could get way, way, way up there... So that you left the atmosphere, well, you're going to be dead about that fast. Because the temperature in space is absolute zero. In the absence of oxygen, you'd, you'd be dead in a flash. The radiation you'd be exposed to would be a third thing that would kill you. I mean, you can't survive. There's no way to get from here to there on your own. There's only one way that we can imagine anybody getting from Earth to Mars. And that is to be inside, to be in a rocket ship that will protect you and that will propel you across a vast expanse that you could never carry yourself across and deposit you at a place that you could never take yourself to. Friends, that is a picture of what it means to be in Christ. There is no way for you to get to God. No way for me to get to God. No amount of Bible study, seminary training, or human effort will get you or me to God. It's like trying to flap your way to Mars. It's like seeing if you can high jump to the moon. You're not going to get there. Don't waste any time. You've got to be put in someone or something far greater, far more powerful than you, that can protect you and carry you to where you want to go. That's what it means to be put in Christ. When you place your faith in Jesus... 
You are placed in him so that his story becomes your story. His record becomes your record. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't just see John Beck and all of John Beck's failures. Oh, he sees and knows John, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus in John. Boy, that's nice. It's hard to get that in our heads and hearts, isn't it? To know that God doesn't just say, forgiven, that God looks and goes, wow, that's incredible. That's as awesome as my son Jesus. And I see that much righteousness in you, John Beck. In you, Stuart Mayhew, I see the righteousness of Jesus all over you. That's what it means to be in Jesus. Jesus doesn't have a hard time getting to the Father. He's perfection. He's the only begotten Son of the Father. He's got free access to the Father. Guess what? So do you when you have faith in Christ and you're in Christ. Boy, that's a secure place to be. And then the third and final part of God's plan for peace is daily dependence on God, which increases our levels of faith and peace. In Isaiah 26.3 it says simply, God, you give true peace to people who depend on you, to those who trust in you. Here's who gets peace. It's people who've turned away from living life on their own terms. In faith, they've turned to God. And it's not a one-time thing. It's something that just every day, they just live in dependence upon God. Lord, I realize I got where I am today because of you and by you. And I realize that today is going to be a train wreck apart from you. So I just absolutely depend on you. And the scripture says, those are the ones who live in true peace. It's pretty counterintuitive, isn't it? That somebody who's broken and in a place of total dependence would have peace. Well, that just sounds scary to us, doesn't it? It's like, no, peace is when I've got it together and life is going well and I'm in control and I've got the resources that I need. That's peace, isn't it? Nope. Peace is belonging to the God who is completely in control and who says, I am committed to always taking care of you as much as I would take care of Jesus. And though you don't measure up, I make you able to measure up. And though you don't have the resources or the capacity to fix everything that's broken around you, I'm more committed to you than you are to you. So you just depend on me and let me work it out. Now, I bet if we could just really dialogue about this, that what we would find among ourselves is that the problem is we don't depend on God that way. It's probably the most wicked thing that's wired into me is that I still believe I can pull off most things that I'm called on to do. I will, I hate to admit it, but my default position is Mark handle it. I just revert back to that again and again. I got this. I got this. I'll handle this. When God is going, oh, do you really? Well, then let's see how you do with that. And it doesn't ever work out well. It is such a learned discipline to depend on God in all things. And I think if we're honest, we probably, a lot of us have to admit that. It's so hard to learn to depend on God for everything. Do you realize that as parents, the, the most fundamental thing that we are called on to do is to take little babies and little children that totally depend on us for everything and to help them transition to a point where they grow up and they stop depending on us for everything and they depend on God for everything. 
So many of us mix that up. We, we either are so codependent, we want them to always depend on us. We've done a great job with that with the millennials, that we want them to eternally depend on us. Or we want them to be independent, which is so toxic for our Christian faith. God dependence is the goal. How do you get that? If you're as hard-headed as I am, if you're as independent as most of us are, how do you get to a place of dependence on God? Oh, God's got a solution for that, and you're not going to like it. Needs. Desperation. Needs are our good friends. God will just let life happen. Life's difficult. God will just let a great big old crisis come your way. Oh, it may be job loss, it may be financial crisis, it may be a relationship that was going to last forever that's gone. It may be a health crisis where you're just chasing after something that could be awful and they can't figure it out. Oh, it comes in all kinds of forms. But God loves you enough, He'll let crises come our way. And then He'll let us decide, are we going to try and handle this or are we going to depend on Him for this? The last few months of my life have been a, a rehearsal of this exercise again as, as just, you know, all kinds of questions have arisen. I have, I feel like I have given more blood than the Red Cross in the last several weeks. In the last several weeks, six different doctors, six different specialists, all these different tests. Nobody can still make any sense out of what's going on. Good outcomes to all the tests like bone marrow tests and those kinds of things. Keep getting good results. Blood tests continue to just be wacky and don't make any sense. And doctors keep running tests and ominous things will be said. And then test results will turn out good. And then run more labs and they're not good. And more tests and they are good. And it, it's just it, it, it's chaotic and crazy. And the only reason I even waste your time to tell you that is to say in the natural it would be easy to just stress and fret and worry about. We've got to figure this out. We've got to fix this. We've got to resolve this. But what this becomes is a wonderful opportunity to just go, God, I can trust you with this today. I can trust you with my health today. I can trust you with my family. Doctors hadn't figured this out, but you have. You know what it is. You've already spoken over this. And we just will choose today to rest in what you say about this. The same kind of things happen in your life. It may not be medical issues for you right now, but the same kind of stuff happens to you. Crisis hits. Difficulty. Adversity. And we can either get mad because we deserve better and life's supposed to be good, or we can say, you know what, this is an opportunity for me to learn to depend on God. And today, that's what I choose to do. God, I trust you with my health. I trust you with my future. I trust you with my love life. I trust you with my kids and my parenting and my, my career and all of these things. Depending on God is the last key to finding real peace with God and peace in life. And so I just want to ask you very simply, have you placed your faith in Jesus for your salvation, for your future, for your life? And are you living at a place of depending on Him on a daily basis? If not, why don't you let today be a day that you make a change and that you just let Him have control of every part of who you are. Would you bow with me as we pray together right now? Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus. We thank You for His life and for His death and resurrection. We thank You for His victory. 
And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you not only offer us the gift of salvation, but the gift of your peace. Lord, I pray that today, by the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us in ways that bring conviction of sin. We just don't want to sidestep the hard stuff. Lord, I pray that you would show us where we have lived in ways that are displeasing to you or just where we've tried to live independent of you. I pray that you convict us of that. That we would just be able to say in unison with your voice that that's sin and that we could turn from that. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see clearly today where we stand in terms of faith. And for those who don't know you yet as Lord and Savior, I pray that today you give gifts of faith. If today you want to trust Christ and you want to experience forgiveness and new life, why don't you just from your heart just pray a simple prayer with me that says, Jesus, I need you. I give up on trying to fix my own life. I give up on having to be in control. And I ask you to come in. Live in me. Forgive me. And change me. Jesus, I thank you that you hear and answer our prayers. I thank you for your forgiveness. And I pray that you would seal this moment with the deposit of your Holy Spirit in hearts that are crying out to you. For some of us who trusted Christ but who are not living in a place of daily dependence on him, would you just be honest with God about that? If it's the desire of your heart, would you just declare today, Jesus, I want today to move from independence to depending on you. There are some people that today, the Holy Spirit has just put his finger all over a specific issue or relationship in your life. It's been stressing you out. It's been eating you up. You have been wrestling with it and wanting to fix it and manage it and the Holy Spirit is saying it is time that you hand that over and begin to depend on Jesus for that why don't you just do that in prayer right now just in faith hand that whole situation over to him God we trust you with our lives we trust you with our families and our futures you have control you reign in us We love you and we welcome your work and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, We would love the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.